Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. I'm so excited for this subject. This is this is such a great topic. Yes. Not too much death and destruction in this part of it anyway. On the contrary, there's culture and learning and good things. Yes. We're going to talk, start talking about some building work at Nineveh, and I'm going to put it at 646. It's, you know, this is really an ongoing thing. Can't really accurately date it all, but let's just say it started here, and then we'll talk about some of the projects. I think it makes sense that it started in 646 because the the big revolution is over, and Ashurbanipal has been receiving a lot of cultural input. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a thought he has been having for a long time because there is a cultural movement uh, in all of all lands he touches. Mm-hmm. Um, the old cuneiform is going out of style hmm. because cuneiform is super hard. You have to spend your whole life. As Ashurbanipal has done, he was trained to be a scribe Mm -hmm. and it's so hard to learn to read and write but now we have fancy new stuff we have Aramaic a language that is extremely easy to learn and we have the alphabet Mm -hmm. people Phoenician writing is really simple so people are learning how to write Aramaic in Phoenician letters which is super simple so Ashurbanipal fears that all knowledge will be lost, that all the ancient books people have been writing in cuneiform for God knows how long, and there's so much knowledge, and he sees that in in a short while, nobody will be able to read this stuff. Huh. That's a good. He has to act. 
this is his greatest act, in my opinion. I mean, we wouldn't know anything about this if he didn't do this. This is such an important act of his that I'm, I'm almost willing to forget all the atrocities in last <laughs> episode, but not quite. <laughs> and I mean, you know. And he will be doing more atrocities. Oh, murder. of course he's got. And, you know, Summer still. He's he can't. Summer, you know, a leopard never changes his spots, right? As they say. So it's a mass murdering librarian we're talking about here. <laughs> Yes, he is. He is. That is for sure. And of course, we're talking about the library of Ashurbanipal. Yes. It was started in the 640s. There's an ongoing project. I mean, all the kings had libraries in their palaces, but his he was um, he really increased the contents of his, bringing texts from all over the empire. Yeah, because. He is the first king who knows how to read and write. Sennacherib, Sargon, they didn't care about the libraries. They were like weird, weird places for his scribes to hang out in. Right. But Ashurbanipal understands what's in the libraries. And, um, you know, they, some say that he was looking for magic, a lot of magic, too, because a lot of the stuff that they find are spells and things like that. So he's maybe trying to, you know, figure out how to keep on the power, keep power and different magic things and stuff like that. There are, of course, there are historical works and there's all kind of things in there. He is a librarian, not a scientist. So, of course, he's looking for magic. Right. The Assyrians are, after all, quite superstitious. Mm, yes. I mean, everybody was in those days. They didn't really have... How, how would you know what all that stuff was? I mean, how would you exactly. know that a star was a sun? Exactly. I mean, how could you? That's not, you know, intuitive. Oh, that must be a giant burning sun. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Ashurbanipal will brag about his ability to read and write. Yes, he does. So, so this is what he says. I acquired the hidden treasure of all scribal knowledge, the science of heaven and earth, and I have studied the heavens with the learned masters of oil divination. <laughs> what? <laughs> I have solved the laborious problems of division and multiplication, which were not clear. I have read the artistic script of Sumer and the obscure Akkadian, which is hard to master, taking pleasures in the reading of the stones from before the flood. So I think here, except for his knowledge of strange language, he basically has the education of a fourth grader. He can <laughs> do division and multiplication, which probably makes him one of the most learned men in the whole uh, Near East. Right. He's very proud of this accomplishment. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's funny with the oil divination. That's I just realized when my when I was a kid, my mother, and so then my my aunt, so that'd be my great aunt. She used to do when my mother had a headache. So we we're Italian Catholics. They used to she used to get something with oil, and some water, and she would drop the oil in it. And if the oil ran a certain way in the bowl, it meant that she had the overlook, and somebody was jealous of her. <laughs> okay. I'm telling you, she's I when I got as I got older, I'm like, what the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> but I'm telling you, man, they believed it. So it's a human nature thing, I guess. I bet. I, I think we still want to do a whole episode sometime on the library, right? But maybe we can oh, get yes. some of the highlights. Yes. It's uh and uh 
given what will happen in 612 BC, it is such a miracle that this library actually survived. Because mm-hmm. almost nothing of the Assyrian Empire survived. I know. But this did. And we found the library of Ashurbanipal in the 1850s and spent 80 years digging it up. Yeah. It's a great story. Yeah, this is how we discovered the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah. Uh, the very first uh, fictional work preserved. Mm-hmm. The, the oldest fictional work preserved. I've done a couple of videos on the Epic of Gilgamesh on the Fan of History YouTube channel. And actually in the Hillary Clinton's emails, there was a mention of the Epic of no Gilgamesh. No way. So a lot of people were looking, uh, on, uh, were searching on YouTube for the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I made a video named the, the Epic of Gilgamesh in five minutes. So a lot of people looked at that. So it, it is quickly becoming the most popular video on our YouTube channel. That's amazing. Put Hillary Clinton in the tags. Oh yeah, I think I've, I haven't read the email, so I won't speculate on what they were about. But I, I was surprised that the Epic of Gilgamesh was mentioned. I, don't, I, I have a feeling I'm just going to throw this out that I doubt that the Trump campaign is referencing the Epic of Gilgamesh in any of their emails. I think Trump would very much enjoy being like Gilgamesh. Yeah. Who was the other guy? What was his? What was the barbarian? What was his name? The wild man, yeah. Enkidu. Hey, Enkidu. Enkidu. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we also, also have... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you tell me. We also have the Enuma Elish, which we have uh, referenced before, the Babylonian creation myth. Uh, there is also the poor man of Nippur, which is a strange tale about a man who beats up the mayor of his town three times for laughing at him over a goat (laughs) (laughs) it's true (laughs) and as you mentioned the historical and literary text actually those things we are really interested in make up less than 2% of Ashurbanipal's collection Uh, the rest of it is divination texts legal stuff which of course can be interesting and administrative reports Uh, remember that after Sargon the there is a lot of writing and after the the post office was invented in Assyria there is a lot of letters there is a lot of writing you yeah. actually have quite a bit of Assyrian writing after Tiglath-Pileser III Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, what's cool, too, I remember that they in the library, they said that um, the different texts are on different shapes. So certain ones are on, on circles. Some of them are squares. Some of them are rectangles, you know. That's how they could tell, like, a, for example, like a legal text might be on a circle, a, you know, a round clay tablet. Okay. Yeah, that kind of thing. I also heard that they, Ashurbanipal had a shopping list of what he's looking for. So it was all, you know, many years during his reign, he's looking for things. And he sent uh, scribes and messengers to acquire things, to copy them. And it's also been said that there was Babylonian scribes literally chained up in Nineveh to write from memory. Yeah, I expect that uh, all Assyrian soldiers have had like orders to do this, to find scribes, find texts, mm-hmm. check with the scribes, is this interesting? And uh, possibly they were even rewarded for finding uh, books or texts. Yeah, There I are, think. of course, no books at this time. And just to break to throw in um, Anne Rice, the Serpent of the Bones, there was a character who went all over the Near East looking for scrolls and scripts and things so that he could find spells, and then that's how he cast his spell. So, the Ashurbanipal script police looking for text. Yeah. He probably, he didn't get to it, though. This In the book, it happened later. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, so that's the starting of the library. So he... Um, he, but he also remodeled his called the bit reduti, which is means the place of retiring, which is his private um, apartment in the palace. It wasn't like an apartment we'd consider an apartment. It was his private area of the palace. Um, it originally was built by Sennacherib, so he thinks it was in need of some repairs and updates. I will now put the sign on my apartment uh, saying bit reduti. <laughs> Yeah, you should because it really means the harem. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So, I know I'd love to see like the before and after show, right? Like here's this, here's his bit to duty before, and uh, it was built in the 80s, six 80s by Sennacherib. It was a little dated, so he had to redo it. I- I actually do expect Sennacherib's decorating to be better than Ashurbanipal's. Yeah, I mean, he was an engineer, right? Yes, and he, he sort of had a sense for beauty, <laughs> whereas Ashurbanipal only loves texts and mass murder. Yeah, so so, so it seems. Um, he says that... Oh, he says... He talks about how, as a king, he received so many wonderful messages of his victories over his enemies and had sweet dreams in his bed. Psychopath. Totally. He's a total psychopath. (laughs) Um, He says, um, on Elamite wagons, he brought in bricks, and he made the uh, kings of Assyria do... I'm not sorry. He made the kings of Arabia do manual labor. 
the kings of Arabia who had violated the oath sworn to me, whom I had taken alive in the midst of battle with my own hands, I made carry the basket and head pad and do task work, molding its bricks, performing labor upon it. They passed their days to the accompaniment of music. Amidst gladness and rejoicing, I completed it from its foundation to its top. I made it wider than it was before. I carried out the work on a magnificent scale. He's really taking care to make everyone hate the Assyrians. I know. <laughs> this will not end well. I mean, really. I guess, I don't know. I mean, the people trying to kill you and being in that, having that much power just goes to their heads. King Joffrey is all I could think of is like King Joffrey. He seems to be a bit like King Joffrey. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe, you know, he lived longer. He's older at this time, too, so... He's more of a, he's more of a more capable King Joffrey. This is all it takes to wreck a, a dynasty that is over a thousand years old, or at least that's what they claimed. One bad seed, yeah. one bad guy, and yeah. it all goes tumbling down. Yeah, and definitely a part of it. He says he says also that. Um, Wait, let's see. He said he had great beams of cedar from Lebanon, door leaves of juniper, which he says their odor was pleasant, bound with copper, tall columns enclosed with sheets of bronze, all new furniture, and the final touch, a great park of all kinds of fruit trees I planted at its side, at its sides. So like it had a garden inside of it, which is interesting because I remember watching a documentary um, about the Garden of Eden in the Bible, and so they... The, she said that that could represent a king's garden where the people could walk with the king because the kings would have these, you know, beautiful gardens in the, inside their palaces. So I, I definitely. And so this is also where Tumen's head would have been hung in that garden. Such, such a downer. You're walking around in the garden with all the beautiful fruit trees and then a head. <laughs> <laughs> You guys have Halloween. Do you guys celebrate Halloween in Sweden? Yes, we do. We have imported it from you, and yes, the, the, it's fairly new, actually. We oh, didn't okay. do it when I was a child, but now we do. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, this it would seem this would seem like one of those like a Halloween place, you know, where you're just oh, there's nice trees, and then ah, there's a head hanging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, here's where we flay the people over in this area. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Oh, Asher Bonipal, you're ruining it. Yeah, I know. Oh, here's where we let the blood flow down into the drains. God. Well, that, that brings us to this wonderful piece of artwork, which is called the Garden Party. And it's a it's a well-known piece of, you know, artwork, ancient artwork. It's a, it's a relief. And I found this paper by a... a scholar. Her name is Alessandra Gilbert. And she wrote a really good paper on this. And Caitlin, our intern, she really helped me with this one too. Because this this paper had been in my radar for a long time, so I'm glad I got to we got to go through it. Um, I'll post a picture of it. You can see the picture there? I see the picture. Yeah, so you see Asher Banapal, he's laying back on his chair. This must be his garden, you know, that he built in, in his in his harem there. His I'm looking for two months help. And it's great. He has Tumen's head. It's in the British Museum right now. It's considered a masterpiece. 
but most people don't recognize all the symbolism that's packed into it. So now our fan of history listeners are going to find out what it's all about. Can I read the description from the website? Because I think it's funny. It's like it's written as it's, oh, it's a beautiful piece of artwork. Gypsum wall panel, relief fragment, carved in low relief. The topmost register is represented by the garden scene with birds and a locust in the trees. Two women holding napkins, fanning the queen with fly whisks. They each bring a dish, which they protect with a fly whisk, towards the enthroned queen and recycling king, who feasts in the arbor amid the vines, conifers, and palms, hung with the grisly trophies of victory, consisting of the head and hand holding a wand of Tumen, king of Elam. The hands of a woman drummer and a woman harpist can be seen amid the palms and conifers. Behind the king stand two more ladies holding napkins and fanning him, and behind them is a table holding his sword, bow, and quiver. The furniture is very elaborate. Why, why is there locust in the trees? Uh, that symbolizes, I believe, and I didn't put it in the script, but I'm gonna. That's how his. That would symbolize how his troops swarmed like locusts across Elam. Oh, yeah, makes yeah. sense. Because there's another. There's. Let's break it down here a little, right? So people who saw this would have been educated, and the more educated they were, they would have got the symbolism in it. And this. So this was located in a private wing of Ashurbanipal's north palace so this would have been in line with the high level of comprehension so that would you know means the audience was familiar with all the court literature like the stuff that he's writing in these cylinders and this is sort of a the picture of it so like what you said with the locusts and here's another good example there's an eagle flying over the scene and this is a represent representation of something in those inscriptions concerning the battle of Tiltuba, where he says into the midst of those which none of the kings my fathers had ever approached, my warriors flew like birds. Because, you know, Elam was mountainous. Now, here's my here's the best. This, I, this is worth reading the, through the whole paper. This is a gem. We found one of Tumen's insults. And he says on the insult, well, these are the insults he was sending to Ashurbanipal. I will not sleep until I have come and dined in the center of Nineveh. So this is what Tumen had, was, you know, one of the insults he had sent to Ashurbanipal. So now do you get the point of this whole garden party? Yeah, now he is dining in the center. <laughs> <laughs> or his head is some sort of bizarre. Right. I mean, he is, he is such a gangster. He is. He says, oh, you're gonna, you want to dine in Nineveh? You'll dine in Nineveh. <laughs> so he hung his head and, and drew a thing of it. Well, so, you know, um, she basically says, you know, Tumen's, the garden party, it can be seen as Tumen's Last Supper. That's the name of her pa title of her paper, Tumen's Last Supper. So, as a, you know, a learned person would have known that um, the cruel afterlife that Ashurbanipal had inflicted on Tumen by not allowing him to be buried. Rather, he's paraded around as a mutilated trophy. Well, right? So here's a couple of things she also points out. Tumen did not respect the omens from the gods, so Tumen's left eye is closed, signifying Tumen's evil eye, because he, he mentions Tumen's evil eye. Quote, while the deformed eye refers to the king's arrogant ignorance of divine signs, the receding hairline and shaggy hairs are grotesque physiognomic indexes of a vile and wicked personality. 
So he, even the head that he shows it, like he's ugly, has his eyes closed, he's got wisps of hair hanging off of him. So like Tumen, he's referred to as an exact copy of an evil demon, while Asher Banipal is radiant. So that's how the the relief shows them how you know he's evil and Asher Banipal is wonderful. So from a pictorial, she says, from a pictorial point of view, the garden party adds a touch of black humor. Tumen, forever deprived of sleep, food, and drink, is forced to witness Asher Banipal's lavish banquet. Wow. You know what that reminds me of? No. Lily's song, Sour Grapes. Oh, yes. Right? Great song. So yeah, he used to be a boss, but now he's a follower. And he's eating, probably saying, I bet those grapes are sour anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, Asher Banipal, he is a gangster. He also uh, used an oracle as an excuse to for not going into battle himself. Mm-hmm. So Asher Banipal wanted to promote the image of himself as someone who were listening to divine orders. Yes. And thus he could keep himself away from harm and not die like Sargon, who was always at the head of his army. Right. I guess Ashurbanipal was kind of a good marketer. Yeah, I wonder how he got away with that because the the Assyrians king the Assyrian kings had been very present on battlefields before. Yes, there is. There's a letter from it's one of Bill Ibney's letter, and he says something like. You know, you could just, you don't have to, you know, be in the battle. Let your generals, he does say, let your generals do it like your fathers before you. But I, I, you know, we know that the other kings went to battle, but I imagine they weren't a lot of them, except for Sargon, you know, charging into the, into the fight. At least they were promoting themselves as always being there. Yes. In the final, in the Rassam cylinder, Ashurbanipal makes it as if he's there. I did this, I did that. Even says, I did it with my own hands. But we all know that he did not go. Okay, let's leave the Assyrians for a bit then. Yeah. Where are we going to go? To China. Yes. You do this because these are pronunciations. Oof. I, I don't have a great track record of pronouncing Chinese. Well, you're better than me. I will try. Okay. So we are in 645 BC, yes. and we are looking at the Battle of Lulin. Now, the Battle of Lulin was fought between the states of Chu and Xu, with Xu being supported by a coalition of northern states led by Qi. Remember, Qi is the hegemon ruled by Du Quan and his advisor Gong Shong. We did cover these guys. This is the guy that fought the bear and faked his death by biting his lip, and his advisor that almost got pickled. <laughs> this was back in, uh, in the 660s, right? The 680s was when they, oh when, he, when he almost got pickled, and then Guanzong. Then we did covers Guanzong in the 660s. Okay, and they are still around. Yes. Uh, Xu, that's X-U. Originally, the most powerful state of the Huai River Valley had been weakened by internal unrest and several wars since the beginning of the spring and autumn period. 
As its influence over eastern Hubei, southern Henan, and central Anhui waned, Shu began to expand into these regions. Threatened by these developments, Xu joined an alliance of several northern states against Shu, led by our guy, Duke Huan of Qi. So we have the alliance against Shu. Right. Just before the war, the situation of the Northern Alliance was already showing signs of trouble. Its strongest member state, Qi, had lost much of its military power and influence during the preceding years. And if the Gongyang Xuan is to be believed, there had even been a war among the Alliance members directly before the outbreak of hostilities with Chu. People just can't get along. So the Northern Alliance doesn't get going. And then in the spring of 645 BC, Chu invaded Xu. So Xu decides to take the initiative here. Mm-hmm. And in response to this offensive, Duke Quan of Qi has a meeting with the rulers of Lu, Song, Chen, Bei, Sheng, Cao, and Xu. <laughs> Near <laughs> present <laughs> day, Liao Xing. <laughs> To, to make plans and uh, sort of see that everyone is on board. And they organize an army to uh, face this threat from Chu. Mm-hmm. And they meet up with Chu's army at Lulin, this battle. And it doesn't go very well for the northerners. They are defeated, marking the beginning of Chu's final decline and accelerating the end of Qi's hegemony over China. Remember, the spring and autumn period is the period of the hegemons that the the emperor himself or the king uh, doesn't have much power at all. Right. In autumn, armies from Qi and Cao also invaded the state of Li in present-day Suzhou. In attacking Li, a vassal state of Shu, they attempted to create a diversion in favor of Shu. However, Two forces remained active in Xu, while tension among the coalition began to rise the following winter. These tensions escalated as Song invaded Cao, even though the two were still part of the alliance. Oh, that's not good. I know. And that, of course, undermined the relief expedition and showcased that Qi had lost control over the alliance members. As the coalition fell apart, Chu finally confronted the Xu forces at Lulin. And very little is known about the battle itself, beside the fact that the um, alliance lost mm-hmm. pretty bad. Xu defeated the Xu army. The Chu Chuan only comments that Xu was defeated because it relied too heavily on its allies' support. Uh, Chu's victory was apparently not total, as Xu remained independent and allied with Qi for the time being. So while the Battle of Lulin was not responsible for the end of Qi's hegemony and Xu's decline, it sort of helped. (laughs) So the the downfall was going on. The infighting among the Northern Alliance showed that Duke Wan had no longer control of the other states, further reducing his prestige and authority. And to make matters worse, his advisor, Guangzhong, died in 645. (sighs) And hopefully he wasn't pickled as a burial thing. No, we have a, like, a moment of silence for him. He was, our, he was from our first podcast that I was in. So oh, rest in peace. Rest Guan in peace, Guanzong. Very wise man. Did not get pickled. 
Remember, he was the he had the he started the uh, he did the salt and the iron. He's that guy. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. And then we have a very exact date for an event in China: December twenty fourth, Christmas Eve, on in six forty five BC. Five meteors fell in the north of Shanxi County, Henan Province. How do we know the date so exactly? It was written in the uh, it was written in the in the spring and autumn annals. It's the date they put it in. They wrote the they wrote the date that it was in there. They were writing in the spring of 644, so they would probably get the date right. Yeah. I was thinking as a fan of astronomy as well that maybe this was part of some sort of recurring meteor shower that you could actually track astronomical. I think you guys should check it out. I think we're going to find out. I think there's we have meteors in the in the Rome as well, but that's oh. mystical. The spring and autumn annals are general history covering 722 to 468 BC, and that has given the name to this period. Right. I asked. It's such a poetic name. It is. The spring and autumn period. Like there were no summers and winters, only oh, springs and autumns. The middle, yeah. It's always like the. I guess that's sort of like the in-between seasons, right? Yeah, and um, Confucius, Confucius himself. How do you say it in English? Confucius. Yeah, he had a hand in editing the annals. Yeah, that's he has a hand mean. in everything. Yeah, Confucius say. Everything is written mostly in one-liners in the annals. Yeah. I guess they come down to us fully intact, right? Yeah, it's for, for you know. I mean, I'm not sure how many times they were edited. It's so difficult to get for me anyway. You know, get a lot of Chinese history because so much of it is mostly written in Chinese. Even just even like YouTube videos and things, which sometimes are helpful when I you know when I'm done reading, but not much. Oh, if somebody knows a lot about Chinese history of uh, of this age, then please contact us. Yeah, because we would like to know more. Yes. We may even have another person helping us with that too. Oh, sounds good. Yeah, we're on a roll. Great. Uh, shout out to your uh, interns. Yeah. To our interns. Yes, you guys are awesome. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So let's leave China. Yes. And go back to Conan. Yeah, we'll go right back to Conan. So. What's Conan up to? Conan is stealing women from the woods and you know, playing with his sword. Um, so. So the Cimmerians, now we're going to the area of Lydia, and now we're back to Gyges. Remember in the 650s, I said that the rumor of Gyges' demise was greatly exaggerated. And, and you'll still see today, you'll, you'll see in articles and things, they'll say, you know, Gyges died in 652, but don't believe it. Because Herodotus put it there. And we know what some people call Herodotus, right? He gets a lot of bad rap. He's called the father of lies. Yes. But I think we will talk so much about Herodotus when he shows up. But uh, I think he was trying to do something that nobody had done before. And he was quite uh, easily impressed. And uh, yeah, he didn't know how to fact check. And some things just became very, very wrong. Yeah. I, you know, but it's good that he wrote it down. If we didn't have it, we wouldn't even have that. And the stories are great. So, and they're surely based in some sort of fact. So yeah. Anyway, guy just he's dealing with the nasty scenario, Sumerians on his border, and there's apparently quite a storm brewing in the steppes. 
and to the north, east, and the west of the Assyrian heartland. There's oh yes, yeah. This guy's name, he's got a couple names too. Herodotus calls him Ligdamus, so you'll see that name Ligdamus. But Ashurbanipal called him Tugdami or Dugdami. Maybe we'll call him Doug. So it's either Tugdami or Dugdami. That he's a demon Galu, a barbarian destructor, spawn of Tiamat. So that's how he's a Cimmerian then, or yeah, he's a Cimmerian. Yes. What's a demon Galu? I'm glad you asked. It's one of the seven demons who love to eat human flesh. So he, he calls them a demon. And the the, Sumer, the Cimmerians and the Scythians are said to be cannibals. I also remember that they here they use cannabis. So they're like pot-smoking demon cannibals from the steppes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think there is also significant Scythian pressure on the Cimmerians. Of course, this is extremely hard to... Uh, uh, to reconstruct as they are not historical civilizations. That is, that they don't have any written records of what they were up to. You're exactly right. We don't know exactly what's happening. It seems like to be a pattern, you know, that there's one fiercer tribe pushing another fierce tribe towards them. But, we, you know, then some of them unite. We're not sure because Dogdami is called king of the world in some inscriptions. That means that he wasn't just a minor Cimmerian chieftain, that he was some sort of a king. You know, kind of almost on the level of Ashurbanipal. You know, king king of the universe, maybe Ashurbanipal, but king of the world, meaning, you know, he wasn't just a minor figure. So he may have united some tribes, maybe just a lot of Cimmerians. Like you say, the Scythians may have been pushing them. It's hard to say. But I think perhaps uh, archaeogenesis can help us here, or maybe it already has... What was that? that? Uh, archaeogenesis, the uh, the DNA work being done oh. in yeah. the last few years. Yeah, to could see be. what what actually what, what what if there was a difference between the Cimmerians and the Scythians, or if this was just uh, what the Assyrians said. Yeah, right. I would. I mean, I, they were probably pretty close. I remember reading something. You know, I've remembered things and I forget a lot, but I remember certain things. I remember they did some. Uh, genetic stuff on the Huns during the Roman times, and they found that there was a lot of mix like Roman and Hunnish. So like when these people start coming around the borders of the empire even, they started to mix. So, sorry. And the to, great the mystery of the Huns is uh, what happened to them when yeah. Attila died. But that's another yeah. story. It just all, yeah, that is definitely, we will, we'll see if we can get, with our interns, we might get to that. <laughs> and I think we'll have to give some credit to Lydia and possibly to Urartu as well, because they are keeping the the step hordes uh, from um, the, from Mesopotamia. Absolutely, they are, because they they may come into Mesopotamia later in the not in not in these years, but in the future. Quite soon, I hear. Yeah, I believe so. So, yeah, these guys are moving against Lydia again. So, remember, Gaijus was fighting them before. Remember, he brought a couple of chieftains to Ashurbanipal. And then in 644, Gaijus' capital of Sardis was attacked by the Cimmerians, and he's killed. Hmm. So, moment poor, of silence. Moment of silence. Yes. Alas, poor Gaijus, I knew him well. He was also my our first podcast, the 680s, together. And here the people of mesopotamia the chaldeans the babylonians the elamites the assyrians their world 
wasn't that bad. They had to have this great war in the 640s for dynastic reasons, for like too much Assyrian tribute, for kind of reasons. But if they had not had this war, uh, their situation wouldn't be that bad. Yeah. This is the real threat. The barbarian hordes of the north. Mm-hmm. And poor Lydia has to fight them on their own. Mm-hmm. What does that remind you of in Game of Thrones? Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, so Lydia is like the, the Night's Watch. Yeah, right? <laughs> I tell you, we could have wrote the Game of Thrones. <laughs> The Game of Thrones is history, right? Uh, no. So, yeah, a guy just dies at the hands of the Cimmerians, the flesh-eating demon king. And uh, so Gaija's son, Ardis, becomes king of Lydia. So, yeah, the main reason we can, I believe, and you can believe me, that Gaijus is not dead in 652 is he's mentioned in tablets and cylinders going back to the 650s and into the 640s, too. And each time, he's not dead. Remember we the dream, the writer, blah blah blah. But then in the Rassum cylinder, the last one, that's dated six forty two, you know, at the latest. Okay, latest and earlier strong when I come to the B C times. It could have been written in the six thirties. So anyway, he definitely wasn't dead in the six fifties if you know he's not dead until the thing is written in the six forties. All right. So in that Ashurbanipal tells us artist sent the messenger, he agreed to draw the yoke kiss his feet and all that other stuff I bet he did because he needs the Assyrian army in the north yeah the Assyrian army is still the best army in the world yeah that's what you need to keep the hordes back I would think and we don't know what happens for sure we know that um, that he captures some Ionian Greek cities the the Cimmerians do the demon king. Yeah, the demon king. He captures some of those Ionian Greek cities there in Anatolia. And then it looks like the Assyrians and him almost come to blows. But then they didn't. Dugnami, Doug here, he sent a tribute. Um, he sends tribute, but he didn't swear an adu. That's a special oath that the Assyrians call. They, he says, you know, he gave tribute, but he didn't swear the adu. Um, and what Ashurbanipal writes is interesting. Oh, you read it. You read Ashurbanipal. Good. As for Tugdami, the king of the mountain dwellers, the presumptuous Gusian, who does not know how to revere the gods he trusted in his own strength, and then mustered his troops and set up his camp on the territory of Assyria to wage battle and war. The deities Ashur, Mulisu, Belmarduk, Nabu, and Ishtar, who resides in the city Arbella, became furious at his provocative mouth, and it sickened them by the command of their great divinity. Fire fell from the sky and buried him, his troops, and his camp. Tudami became frightened and distressed, and he withdrew his troops and his camp and returned back to his land. Right. What's going on here? I don't know. No, you don't know. You know, it's possible that he didn't have the Scythians. Or maybe this, you know, maybe the Ashurbanipal made a deal with the with the Scythians to go after them. It like it doesn't really make sense. I well, something maybe happened. There were more meteors. Meteors, yeah, meteors. Maybe the gods did do. So like a little bit later, he changed his mind and he he, you know, they he starts to threaten them again. 
And I'll let you also say what he says. This is basically all the information we have is from is from Asher Banipal, and this is what we have. Okay, so Banipal talks against Dugdami again. Again. He broke the vows sworn by the great gods. He transgressed the limits set by them and plotted evil deeds against the territory of Assyria. Where flax grows, he sinned by establishing himself on the territory of Assyria. The awe-inspiring brilliance of the weapons of the god Asher, my lord, overwhelmed him. He went into a frenzy and tried biting off his hands during a loss of all reason. Half of his body was stricken with palsy and a piercing pain was lodged in his heart. His tongue was scratched, and his penis was claw and was tombed. His life ended, though dissolving and melting like a wax figurine, saying, Woe, alas! In their own terror, they struck each other down with the sword, thereby singing the praise of the god Usher, the great lord, my lord. It seems like uh, Dugdami was on a roll here, but then he was beaten by magic. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. I, I, that's and, uh, all I can get. To, to quote another famous Cimmerian, what good is a sword against sorcery? <laughs> there you go. There you have it. It's sad that we have these weird um, speeches of Ashurbanipal because something obviously happened here. Something obviously happened. I mean, some you know, there's some scholarship they talk and they, you know, a pain lodged in his heart. Maybe he was struck with an arrow. I mean, I don't know. His life dissolving, went melting like wax. He became impotent somehow. I mean, but Ashurbanipal is when he's describing other violence, he's quite accurate, isn't it? Yeah. So it doesn't sound like the Assyrians did anything. Like it seems like maybe they had a fight. You know, maybe he sent the Scythians after them. They had a fight. Strabo, Strabo, he says, Ligdamas, however, at the head of his own soldiers, marched as far as Lydia and Ionia and captured Sardis, but lost his life in Cilicia. So maybe he just died fighting. Maybe the Greeks killed him. Maybe there was a plague of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. Because it seems like he was fairly sick. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it's very biblical, isn't it? Yeah, but it seems that uh, Ashurbanipal perceived a real threat and real transgression against the oaths. But then nothing of our usual, but I went there with my army and blah, blah, blah. But these weird supernatural events. Yeah. So, my opinion, he the Syrians didn't do anything, you know, with their army, and somehow they just got lucky, and I guess the magic because was the, the Dugdami was attacking Ionian Greek cities. Yeah. So maybe it was the Greeks. Yeah. And of course, Ashurbanipal doesn't care about the Greeks, so no. if they did it, he would rather uh, ascribe it to the gods. Of course. And he wasn't there anyway, so, you know, he, he could have been people telling him, oh, yes, my lord, it was the gods who love you so much, He's, you know. Just keep eating your grapes and looking at your dead heads. <laughs> <laughs> we got it under control. They're like, Whew. a lot of spy work probably, you know. And of course, the, the Cimmerians are not a sexy enemy. If you if you conquer Elam and wipe out their cities, you retrieve the gods, you destroy the tombs. If you go into the mountains and fight the Cimmerians, you gain nothing. 
except that the stuff that they might have stolen from the Lydians. But they don't have anything. They are refugees in the mountains. It's a real good point. I mean, you need to. It's like it's like the free people up the north, right? And the and the White Walkers. I mean, they don't. You don't get anything by defeating them, but you can't let them take over. Exactly. Amazing. It's the story of history. People come from the steps and then just. Whoosh, and sometimes they do well and sometimes not. Yeah. Remember the Kassites? I don't remember them, but. The Kassites uh, did conquer Babylonia in, uh, before we started this podcast, oh, like okay. before 1000 BC. But they, I mentioned them a lot of times that they were still a presence in Babylonia, but now they don't, they are not mentioned anymore. So. They probably all you know, merged together. Well, that's what a Gudian is, too. Gudians came from the mountains and they had, you know, had a, did the same thing in, in, you know, thousands of years before. Sort of an old term, Gudian. Yeah, it shows you how little Ashurbanipal knows about these people as he calls them Gujians. So yes, so he, it might also be like a slur to call them a Gujian. Like today oh, you'd course. say, oh, that guy's such a Philistine, you know, that kind of thing. Or Vandal. That's, that's yeah, what's so Van, exactly. It's like calling him a barbarian. A mountain, it's basically a Gujian now means like a mountain barbarian, troll or something. And the Cimmerians don't even belong in the mountains. No, 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 not at all. They just ended up there. Yeah. Well, I guess that'll end this episode, and we're going to get back to some more fighting the next time. Yeah, Ashurbanipal is not done. No, he is not done. Remember what uh, Ashurnasipal II did? Remind me. He actually beat everyone. Yeah. And spent the last years of his life in peace. But Ashurbanipal has a lot of people that don't agree with him. Yeah, he still has to fight. Maybe he spends his last years in peace. I don't know. We'll find out. Will we? I, mean, I don't know. It's so crazy how I literally like get into it, in this, and I don't really know what's going on in the 630s yet. It's almost like I don't want to spoil it because it gets me into the, the time. But I, you know, I know some about it. <laughs> That's probably wise. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to remind our listeners that we do have a Patreon, and that enables us to make these episodes. So if you really enjoy what we do, please go to patreon.com and search for Final History, where you can contribute whatever you want to uh, for each episode so check that out yes please and in uh, iTunes and give us a review that'll be great too all right well we'll come back and we're going to talk about some more battles
you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.